you've built a career around using art and images to raise people's awareness and impress upon them the importance of peace, justice, and equality. And after a long track record of success and the creation of an established NGO, you decide to direct your first film, a feature-length documentary shot on location on three continents. And you actually think to yourself, how hard can it be? Seven years later, you know the answer to that question. What you also know is that it was all worth the wait. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. So I said, no problem. Give me a year. I'll make a feature film. So that was, like I said, five, six years ago, because I knew nothing about feature-length documentaries and what it would take to make one in three countries in eight languages on three continents. Eventually, we decided that Bosnia in the Balkans, Colombia in South America, and the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa would be a really great place to start, that those three countries had different approaches to a similar problem. And so if we set our film there and we followed a lawyer in each country, we could really bring audiences a variety of ways, a number of tools with which to approach this problem that often seems intractable, but actually isn't. This week, three hero stories, falling off a motorcycle and persevering in the search for justice. Join us on a journey from the United States to Bosnia-Herzegovina, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Colombia, and creating a testament to courage. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Leslie Thomas. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I am the founder and former creative director of Artworks Projects for Human Rights. Now I'm happily on the board. And I came to ECA through the American Film Showcase Program. I'm incredibly honored that my first feature-length documentary has been selected for the exchange program this year. It's called The Prosecutors, and it's about ending impunity for perpetrators of conflict-related sexual violence, or perhaps in layperson's terms, um, holding people accountable for rape in war. About 13 years ago, I was reading an article about the genocide in Darfur. What struck me is that there was a photograph attached of a little boy who had been killed simply because of his ethnicity. For no other reason, the person who killed him didn't know him, had nothing against him except for who he was. And I was a new mom at the time. Um, I was reading this in the middle of the night, insanely sleep-deprived, as people are, um, had woken up, fed the baby, and then couldn't go back to sleep. I was struck by the fact that if someone could kill this child for who they were, they could do the same to mine. 
And this just seemed unacceptable. I wasn't sure what I could do, possibly not much, but that didn't seem a reason to stop. So I got together with a group of friends who were journalists and fellow filmmakers. We created something called Darfur Darfur, and it was a series of projections that we held outside of major museums around the world and cultural and civic centers. And it basically showed the story of the lives of Darfuri people. And the real takeaway from that was they're just like us. Wherever you are watching those pictures of people who are impacted by genocide, they get up in the morning, they feed their families, they try to create uh, an education system during conflict. They're married, they're divorced, they need health care. They give, they love, they laugh, they die, except they were dying because they were being basically extinguished. So we put this together in a series of projections. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles said they would take it. It went from there to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, to the Jewish Museum in Berlin, and and in the end, dozens and dozens of places and cities around the world. Our goal was to take this issue outside of the kind of policy and NGO community and really bring it to the greater public and really sort of said, we can use art, we can use multimedia projections, we can use digital work to add to the work of human rights campaigns. So we went on and formed this organization, Artworks Projects for Human Rights. 13 years later, We've exhibited on five continents in front of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of viewers. But most importantly, we've gotten to work with photojournalists and musicians and editors and other filmmakers to bring their work, their documentation, that is in turn made in collaboration with the people that they're documenting to new audiences. And then our job is to step back, to let local civil society organizations use these tools to communicate to move, and to make change. We are an equal opportunity partner we, we really find that the best thing to do is to use our creative skills to make communications tools and then work with everyone. We work with the U.S. State Department, with foreign ministries around the world, with public affairs officers, with local civil society groups, with academics, grassroots, victims advocates, and on and on. Our best projects, our most effective work, is when we're incredibly far in the background and different organizations that are local, whether they're internationally there or homegrown, are working together to use our tools to move the needle. And sometimes the most important thing we've done is created a platform where new people are talking to each other. And long after one of our projects has come and gone, they're collaborating. And we hear back years later, oh, they did this, they did this, they did this. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but we feel great about that.
I found that many of my initiatives were around conflict-related sexual violence. A lot of the countries and issues and human rights abuses that we looked at included rape and other forms of sexual violence in war or on battlefield situations. Six years ago, I was asked by the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is kind of the think tank for the U.S. government across the street from the State Department, to film a whole series of experts from around the world who were working on acknowledging, preventing, and ending conflict-related sexual violence. And what I realized is there was a huge movement to hold perpetrators responsible, to end impunity. And I thought, wow, maybe documenting what these lawyers are doing could help garner support for them. So somewhere in a hard drive, which I've long since lost, I'm sure, there is a budget, which is a fantasy, very small number, and a schedule of 12 months to make this film. That was so wrong, I can't tell you. Six years later, I now know what it takes to get to a very rural court in a very rural country with a film crew, how many translators you need when the court proceedings include four different languages, what due process really means when there's a war raging and everyone involved is a hero, what it takes to get a defense attorney to show up to represent someone who they may feel is guilty, but they are so committed to justice that they will put themselves on the line to make sure that whatever verdict is achieved is a true verdict. And what a holistic judicial process is. It means you need to have a road to get to the court. You need to have a court. You need to have power. So you might need to have a generator. You need to have witness and child protection. You need to have enough education for everyone involved to understand what, what the proceedings should include. And you need to listen. At the end of all that, my biggest takeaway is that we as a country have so much to learn from countries that are emerging out of conflict. Lots and lots of them are getting this right. They are really saying we have to look at our constitutions. We have to look at our laws. We have to be flexible. We have to keep our eye on the big prize, which is justice. And it might not be smooth all the time, but they're doing the pieces and parts that are essential. I'm very proud of being an American. There's so many things about this country that are just, just impossible to describe how much joy they give me. And the most important one is that we have a vibrant, open, and civil society. And that when we don't, we protest that too. That is not the case all over the world. But we have a long way to go about making sure that we're sharing those values and that we shine a light on ourselves and on everywhere else that we go. We have to be fighting constantly to make sure that we are documenting what happens here at home and abroad. Making a film about justice at a time when there is a lot of debate about what my own country does means always being willing to discuss who I am and where I'm from. Always having a crew with me that represents different countries, backgrounds, ethnicities, 
trying constantly to hire local collaborators who would push back on what we were filming and why and make sure that the product that we came out with was reflective truly of what we were seeing. Because it's not just translation, it's understanding. I can tell you one day I was sitting in a Bosnian courtroom. A translator was sitting next to me explaining uh, the, the proceedings. This was a 20-year-old case about sexual slavery and rape that had happened during the Bosnian War after the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And after about an hour and a half, the translator turned around and said, you do understand that you are the only person in this courtroom who doesn't know all of the people here who is guilty and who is not. And I asked her, then why does everyone think that they need to be here? And she said, because we have to do this. So when you're making the film, be sure that you don't just document it, but show the urgency and the commitment that we have to the process. And it was a very nuanced thing to say, but it gave me marching orders for that country. In Congo, the lawyer Amani Kahatwa from the American Bar Association Rule of Law comes from three generations of law. She has been threatened. Her children have been threatened. Her family has been under siege for the work that she does. And when I ask her, is it okay if we follow you? Is it okay if there are cameras? She looks at me because we have this conversation all the time. And she says, this is my job. I don't care that you're here. My responsibility is to end impunity for perpetrators of rape. You can come, you can go. We are doing this work. I can be threatened, I cannot be threatened. I don't have a choice. That was the story there. In Colombia, Sandra Moreno, Giovanna, the entire crew at the Fiscalia, they are just starting this process. And when you ask them, why do you do this? Why do you do this when it means that you have no privacy, you have no security, no one can know where you live? They say things like, this is the tip of the iceberg, we're just beginning, and we're never stopping. One day, the lawyer that we're following in Colombia, Sandra, she had to go and take a deposition from Marco Tulia Perez, who is uh, also known as Eloso, an unbelievably dangerous and incredibly brutal paramilitary leader who held this small town in the region around it, Libertad, at the coastal Colombian region, under his thumb for years, using forced killings and rape and, and trafficking and, and disappearances. She had to go see him in his prison. She was describing this and how absolutely frightening it is in some ways. And this is a woman who I would stand behind in front of any fire. She's so brave. 
But she's in this very small room with this man who will do anything and has done it. And she says, I don't have a choice. This is the work. I have to do it day in, day out. It's in my dreams. It's in my time off. It never goes away, the threat of this. The fact that he has endless connections with people outside of the jail. The fact that at any time something can happen to myself, to my colleagues, to the victims, to the witnesses. And she said, so we just go. The story really impacted me, not because it was one single event of bravery, but because it means that these people's entire lives have been taken over by this. It will never go away. It will never leave their dreams. But they don't back down. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the country has had unbelievable violence really since the colonization, the occupation of the Belgian government for decades and decades and decades. There has just been brutal ruling in a primarily non-democratic manner. The elections, including the current one, have been marked by more violence. And so democracy has not been a simple evolution. It is particularly tragic because the country is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest in the world in terms of natural resources. In eastern Congo, in Goma, where we are following Amani and Charles Guy and Nadine, who work with the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative as lawyers for victims of grave crimes, we see them go into courts on a regular basis and go to investigate cases. And it's that investigation process that is just markedly heroic. The particular issues that come to my mind are when Amani and her colleagues are working to represent child victims, children who have been impacted directly by conflict-related sexual violence and then forced to be perpetrators of war crimes. Women like Amani, who herself is a mother, going forward in the middle of conflict to small towns where everyone knows why she's there, where convicted and unconvicted war criminals can see her as she fights for the rights of these children, you, you can't describe the heroic qualities that it takes to do this. They do these things in a sensitive manner. They make up stories and excuses as to why they're visiting children to make sure that nobody knows why they're being spoken to. They turn their own lives upside down. They have to arrange for someone else to care for their children. And, and yet they go forward. They can tell you chapter and verse as to what these war criminals have done and then turn around and get a cup of coffee and do it again. I'm quaking, you know, 
ridiculously nervous. Should we do this? Should we not? Should I walk home at night in this community where they're going out and have a target on their back? But they just go forward. of what we as a crew and I as an individual learned around conflict-related sexual violence, there is no braver person than a whistleblower, than a witness, than a victim who is also a witness, than a person who comes forward and says, this happened to me. Globally, we're, we're in kind of a, a convulsive movement of Me Too, of recognition, of understanding and awareness of sexual violence, and due process of how these things work together, of how we provide access to justice for those who have accused someone and those who have been accused. When you throw conflict into the mix, when you have a system which is broken and this is happening together, it stress tests every ability of ours to do this. I also learned a lot about perceptions of gender and perceptions of women. Women in conflict are perpetrators, they're victims, they're observers, they're survivors, they're everything. If you come to the table with an assumption about a particular gender in a particular place, you are wrong and you are not going to see the truth. We saw this in courtroom after courtroom after courtroom. That's a really big deal. There's so much perception about this. There's so much thought that a woman isn't a perpetrator, or a woman is a perpetrator, or this or that or the other thing. You know, your allies are, are in unlikely places, and if your eyes are open, you can find them. When you decide you know nothing, you can learn everything. The other thing that I learned is that your, your translator, your fixer, your translator's translator is your best friend. We had situations where we had a, a woman who spoke Kinyarwanda speaking to someone who spoke Swahili, translating to someone who spoke French, eventually translating it back to me who pathetically speaks English and a bunch of other things terribly. You have to tell the story in the language that it's told and you have to get the nuance right. We ended up with eight languages in this film, and it meant that we have worked overtime, double time, triple time to try to get it right. We've probably made some mistakes. We're still catching them, and it matters. You know, filmmaking is an iterative process, even while you're still making the film. I 
had the pleasure of working with some of the best photojournalists in the world in, in projects based on still photography. And when we started this documentary, it was very important to me to work with photojournalists who were doing motion, but had a background in conflict photography and specifically an understanding of the particular region that we were shooting in. Best case scenario, you're working with somebody who is from where you're shooting. Juan Arredondo and I spent months and months and months, along with Jared Moosey and others in Colombia. There was a moment when Sandra, and she hates this, but that's too bad, um, Sandra, our very tough lawyer, started to get very choked up and emotional about the impact of war criminals on civilians in Colombia. And she began to cry. And I was sitting in the back of the room, and I'm trying not to say anything, but I'm desperately wanting to say to Juan, promise me you have this, promise me you have this. I can't say anything because she'll stop crying. And afterwards, he just looked at me and I was like, okay. There are times when your camera is there and when you are there and you're not sure if you should be. I made a decision that this film would be in honor of survivors, their communities, legal victims of conflict-related sexual violence, but that we did not need to interview people and ask them to share their stories. These people have already had this experience. And it is not for us to simply say, can you tell us about it? Because we don't know. It was our job to document the legal process. You only see survivors discussing stories when they are in the legal process. That's how it was done. But sometimes still you're in the room while a deposition is being taken, while someone is describing what has happened to them or their child. And you have this instinct to raise your hand and say, are you sure you want us here? Is it okay? It's a fine line between protection and patronizing. And when someone says to you, I want you here and I want you to document this, your job is to shut up and do it. And then make sure that they understand afterwards that if they've changed their mind, it's okay. So we were there for the fullness of whatever happened. We said afterwards, are we good? And we were good. Someone asked me once, why didn't we make the film focused on the individual survivor and victim stories? And I gave them exactly that answer, that this was about due process for those people. The person who asked me wasn't satisfied. They said, what you have to do is simply tell these stories over and over. And I said, that's another movie. This one's called The Prosecutors.
In talking about this film, one of the things that's come up is the global advocacy community around sexual violence in in all situations has spent a lot of time discussing the words survivor and victim and and what do they mean and, and how do we parse them and when do we use them. And one of the things that's interesting is that in the making of this film, I spent five, six years with lawyers. And in the outreach for the film, I'll spend another several years with lawyers all the time. And a crime has a victim. The word victim has no connotation of lack of agency. It doesn't mean that someone has accepted what's happening to them. It just simply means there is an illegal act happened and there was a victim. And so when we talk about the film and we talk about the victims in the film, that can be a little bit challenging for some people in the civil society community because they'll say, these are survivors. And I found myself almost being a little bit defensive sometimes because I also use the word survivor. So what what I did is talk to victims and survivors and said, how do you want us to do this? And that made it very clear because they said, when you're talking about a case, these are victims or these are witnesses, and they might be the same person. When you're talking about the larger issue, those people who do not lose their life are survivors. Some people are killed in the process. often men, have treated conflict-related sexual violence, rape in war, sexual slavery in war, sexual trafficking in war, as collateral damage. This has been addressed as put down the guns, give back the land, provide access to the river, give me your diamonds, or the whole mine, and we'll ignore the whole rape thing. We did it. You did it. We don't need to get into that during the treaty making. Let's just sort this out. The reality is there's tons of precedents for this being a crime. And now we're developing all kinds of case law, which will help people moving forward. In my first trip to Congo, I'm supposed to get on the back of this motorcycle. It's called a Boda Boda, and it's how you get around. I have all of my my backpack, my shooting stuff, um, and this young man and I who cannot converse because, unfortunately, I speak neither Swahili nor French. It's dark. Uh, I'm trying to get on his motorcycle, and I am so incredibly uncoordinated that I I fall down. I take the whole motorcycle down. I'm now laying underneath it in the mud, the beautiful red Congolese clay. Um, I'm horribly embarrassed, and he's frantically trying to figure out whether he has, you know, killed me. A truck shows up with 20 armed soldiers, and they see this woman lying under this motorcycle, and this guy, and they all clearly decide it's his fault, and the guns are trained on him, and I'm yelling and screaming in this completely useless English, and saying, no, it's me, it's me, it's me. And if I was him, I would have thrown me under the bus <laughs> to save his own life. And all he does is ignore the guns, ignore the guys, picks up the motorcycle, cleans me off, explains everything to them. I'm, I'm just mortified. It's like this worst American, you know, kind of 
cliche of getting coming to a town, getting somebody in trouble, drives me to dinner, doesn't take my money, and wishes me well. And it was probably the littlest thing to him, but for me, it was just like, welcome to Congo. We are nice people, <laughs> no matter what you do. We had been shooting in Bosnia. We had met a number of, of people who worked in the war crimes office in this rural town. We had gone with our prosecutor to a number of different investigations. We had met incredible people who had come forward with stories that had happened 20 years ago, people who had been held in captivity, people who had investigated cases 20 years ago and then kept silent about the stories but kept them so that so that one day they could bring the case to light. We, we were all exhausted, and, and we were just visitors. Imagine being there constantly. And we were going to leave the next day after a long, a long filming trip. We're a little demoralized. There had been some dead-end cases. We had seen victims come forward to try to tell stories and then discover that there really might not be enough evidence and have to rethink whether after all these years they were going to give up. And it was the last night, and I got a call from our prosecutor, Yasmin Message, that his wife and he wanted us to come for dinner. So we show up at his house. It was not just a home-cooked meal. It was a home-cooked meal with an accordion. Because it turns out our prosecutor, besides being a legal expert, plays the accordion. And for four hours, we sat and ate Bosnian food and listened to music and heard stories and watched people danced and realized that there is so much joy left in these towns. And there is so much looking ahead as well as looking backwards. We started this film to document efforts to bring justice to victims and survivors and their communities of conflict-related sexual violence. I thought that we would find examples of it, and I thought that we would find people to support. We, we want to generate support for those folks globally. But I found more than that. I found brilliance. I found bravery. I found that if you go anywhere, you can find heroes to learn from, to stand behind, to stand alongside of. And yes, they need resources. Yes, we better get there and provide what they need. But even more importantly, we, we, we found lessons to share. So the most important thing we want out of this film is for folks to see it, who are practitioners, to learn best practices. For folks who aren't yet practitioners, but maybe in the field of law, to get inspired to join these folks. And for those of us who are voters, who are funders, who are 
who have the right to call elected representatives to get on the phone and say, hey, let's do this. Put my vote behind this. We want foreign policy. We want domestic policy that ends impunity, that supports those that are doing the work, and that believes in justice. When we found out that we had been accepted by the American Film Showcase, we did the happy dance. It is so exciting to have the international network, the global network of embassies and consulates and posts in American corners disseminating a film like this, of saying that we as a country believe in justice. You know, it's a long journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. That's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And every day that you support due process is one day closer to a just world. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Leslie Thomas described the making of her first feature-length film, The Prosecutors, which was accepted as part of the 2019 slate of American Film Showcase. For more about the film, check out theprosecutorsmovie.com. For more about American Film Showcase and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We, of course, encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a nice review while you're at it. We'll appreciate it. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. You can find photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks to Leslie for sharing her stories and for her commitment to making the world a better place. An extra special thanks this week to Tomas Pierre Serrate, the composer of the original score, which was heard throughout this episode. Songs heard were The Struggle, From Goma to Masisi, can't Stop Thinking About It, War Crimes, Heal Africa, From Bogota to Tunya, Cincelejo, Yasmin's Case, Mood One, and Kluich. I did the interview and edited this segment. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.